1: Well, the big question is, is why do we lock our cars? Why do we have an alarm system right here in the sanctuary when we're not here at night? And when you go to the third floor, you have to remember this long number to make sure you punch it in in time so we don't set out this huge screaming alarm. Well, we do it because we know that in this life, in our world system today, that there are nefarious people. People that, for whatever reason, would like to take advantage of your freedoms and of your possessions and take that for their very own and maybe even do us bodily harm. So what we do now is that we protect ourselves, whether it's in our businesses or churches or cars or homes, with various alarm systems so that we feel like we would be safe. Yet at the same time, as believers in Christ, we often do not put up a type of an alarm system to recognize that there could be spiritual and intellectual dangers that could lurk out there that are trying to, by way of Satan, to come in and steal us from not thinking correctly. Or worse, to feed us air that we in turn choose to believe. Based on that, we raise a value system And then we live a life based on what we've chosen to believe, to think, to be true. Only to find out later on, hopefully, that it was a lie and we can make a mid-course correction. The unfortunate thing is there are millions of people that are dying today who have believed that lie and they did not respond to that alarm system that God has out for them. And then I'm thinking of another illustration that might work for you. You know, and I remember the day that we're on the island then. Do you remember how that maybe you were having breakfast and getting ready for church on a Sunday morning? You felt your house or apartment or building quake. How many of you remember that? Okay, I do. And I'm looking around and thinking, let's see, we're down below and the wongs are above us. You know, so I'm thinking, do we run outside? What do we do? And then the quaking stopped. But when it stopped, do you remember how the entire island was shut down with power? There was no power except for some remote auxiliary power in different places. And, of course, it was hard for us to have church services here. The streetlights weren't really working. They'd tell people to stay home, don't get out on the streets. Because you know what would happen if you're driving down the road, the streetlights working, all of a sudden it quits. So do you stop, do you start, what do you do? And there could be mass confusion and even injury and death at a light that went out. We know how bad that was. I remember how excited we were, though, when the lights went on. We're, again, we're at the Wong's home. They had the family over there. We're on the dark back porch having this little uh, auxiliary light we had on. And then all of a sudden, we were watching the various hotel lights come on on Waikiki. And we could hear from their house, nine blocks away, the people that were out on the streets for hours and hours, cheering when their hotel lights went on, when they could finally get a shower. Well, again, when the lights came on, we felt safe Again. Well, I'd like us to have the light turned on of the Word of God so that we too can be safe. And at the same time, still guard our minds against air that would be out there. Now, Paul recognized the seriousness of that. While he never lived in Colossae, to our knowledge, he loved those people with a passionate love, so much so that he was in conflict that they would know truth and live truth. And he knew that they lived in an environment that they too had a lot of air that they either grew up with or that they have gone beyond and had truth, but they were hearing error again from the surrounding community and lifestyle of the people that they were in. And so again, he was wanting them to not be deceived, that they wouldn't be cheated, that they would know truth. And he said that three times in one passage, constantly warning them of these things. And I got thinking, if he did that then of people he did not know, should I as a pastor of people of whom I love dearly do any less than that? In fact, Paul went on to say at other times that for night and day, for years, he would weep that people would be properly warned against error and would be taught the truth. Well, today, in this passage, Paul gives us what I believe we can extrapolate from it, 5 comparisons between what we would call a secular worldview and then a biblical Christian worldview and that how that if we properly balance them together, we can have an understanding of the rightness of God and the wrongness of the world. And so very quickly, if you look at this last week, we talked about the secular worldview of false human teaching. It came from people who wanted to get close to some God. But they did it their way, sometimes bringing in from their past of their Jewish heritage, some of it from their Gentile teaching, all wedding it together to get closer to God. And here's what he said. He said, beware of legalism, and that is doing more works. Or beware of mysticism, which would be doing worship but of the wrong object. Instead of Christ alone, it often would be angels and other principalities. And then asceticism is doing without things. So either do more, worship the wrong God, or do without things. And that was the human teaching. Now Those of you that are alert to what you're hearing today in what we might call religious teaching or the teaching of the hereafter, you can find salt and peppered in that information. Some of those very same errors there. That's false human teaching. But against the biblical worldview, you have the true teaching of Christ. Which he was saying that it's not more deeds you do. It's not worshiping angels thinking that if you worship this mystical angel, that will get you closer to God. And it's not stopping things in your life that's going to get you closer to the Lord. We learned that when you have Christ, you have everything. Because everything that pertains to godliness is found in Christ and Christ alone. Then the second worldview was the external and the physical. How that the world, in their understanding of their God... Every god of their god, it's something to do with the external. Now, some of you might say, yes, but what about the New Age people? What about those that are in all this mystical stuff? Even in the light of the mystical, you're going to find whether it's going to be particular crystals that are involved in this or some type of show of an object that's involved in it as well. In other words, they have a convoluted belief system that also deals with the external rather than the internal. And the biblical worldview is this that none of those are the right gods. There's only one God, and it's God Almighty through Jesus Christ. And he says, to get closer to him, it comes from the inside out. You may do things in the outside. You might have some objects for maybe some remembrance. But be very careful you're on a slippery slope where those things that you might use to remember, to call your attention to, could eventually become crutches or something that you use to lean on instead of Christ and Christ alone. That's why Christianity begins and ends with the internal and not the external because it's spiritual. Now I'd like to share with you from the passage three more uh, views here. The secular worldview says that there's a legal code that will condemn us. Now whatever religion that you might follow, whether it's uh, people in, in the jungles of South America or someplace on the earth, you'll find that those people somewhere have in their belief system something that if they don't do right, that they will be condemned. It's very similar, kind of wetting itself back to the first part. You have to do this or you'll be condemned. Or you've got to stop doing this or you'll be condemned. Or you've got to worship and do these religious, spiritual things or you won't be condemned. So there's a high level of condemnation that these people live under. Notice the verse it says, Referring to Christ, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So let's talk for a moment about the law. When people today hear the word the law, they kind of have this attitude of, oh, no, the law, ugh, that's horrible. How many of you remember it wasn't just but two or three years ago that almost all over communities in the United States and here on the island you would see various signs that would have the Ten Commandments and then you have all the commandments written out. How many of you remember that? Okay, and you probably even had a sign. And I don't know who you are and if you did, I'm not saying that's wrong. What I am saying, though, is that everyone's attention was drawn to the law. Well, we need to talk about that for a moment. The law tells us exactly what the rules are. It does tell us these, this is the box, these are the rules and that God has standards. It's not just anarchy in there. It's not just do whatever you want. There are some standards there. It also tells us what the penalty is if we break those standards. Now, there's a train. Stay with me. But not only is there penalties... It also shows us, even in the law, that these are the standards, there's penalties or condemnation if you break them, but that man in himself could not do anything to keep that law. Again, it's not doing more works through legalism, it's not through worshipping no more spiritual objects, and it's not through, through taking things out of our life. That we can't do anything to keep that law. But the beauty of it all is this, that when we see the law, and we see that we're condemned by that law, that we can't keep that law. It should, and it does, point us to Jesus Christ. So I hope that from last message and this week's message, and the message that will define my ministry here, will be everything begins and ends with Jesus. It's all about Jesus Christ. Would you say that with me? It's all about Jesus Christ. And it all begins and ends with that, and how important that is for us to understand. So let's look at it now. What's the biblical worldview? And it would be the forgiveness of sin. Now, I want to park on this for just a couple minutes because this is so critically important to the Christian belief system, is the forgiveness of sin. Now, I'm not going to say that there aren't other religions out there that will talk about forgiveness. And there could be various um, belief systems way beyond religions that might say that if you do this, you can avoid condemnation. And so they might even define that as if you do this, you will get forgiveness. But the forgiveness that any other religious belief system could offer you would never be the belief system of forgiveness that God says is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Follow along with me, if you will. The verse says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Let's pause in that for a moment. So it says, And you. The question now is, To whom is Paul writing? Now, obviously, he's writing to anyone who might want to read this, but specifically, he's writing this to believers in Christ in Colossae, which could say that would be you and me. So he wants us to know something that we should have already embraced. So he says, I want you to know this, you being dead in trespasses and sins. Now, and again, that's a little bit past tense. You being dead. Let's talk about that for a moment. I wish I had time to give the mic to all of you and give me your interpretation of what it means to be dead. If we did the Man on the Beach report, we took this little microphone out with the young people on Waikiki Beach and we asked them, What is death to you? What do you think the secular worldview of death would be? Some of them would say, Well, it's a cessation of being. Some would even say that it's an annihilation. You're totally annihilated. Others would say that you could be in such a state of soul sleep that you're kind of like half asleep, but you're not really asleep, but you don't have a lot of control. Kind of a soul sleeping situation. And then the list could go on and on about what death is. Now, when you take what man says what death is, how do you know what they say death is, is really what death is? There's no divine standard. There's no divine voice apart from God. And so when you have God speaking what death is, now we have something that we can hang and build our biblical case with. And so now what do you have with death? Simply stated, death means separation. But it means a whole lot more than just separation. It's separation from Almighty God. It's separation when our body dies from our, soul, our spirit and our soul. Separation. But it also means in a separated state of death, we are underneath the condemnation of God because we have broken the moral code and all of that. Now stay with me on that thought, the idea of death. Let's talk about sin for a moment. If, again, we were down Waikiki Beach with our little recorder and we asked people, tell us what sin is. Some people would say that sin is bad, doing bad things. Some would say boo-boos. Some might say a mistake. Some might say, well, I've sinned when I didn't um, really follow the ethnic groups of what my parents told me I should do, and so now we have moms and dads setting up the divine standard instead of God. You can define sin any way you want. Now, you take a secular worldview. Who would say they're right? That's why you have myriads of belief systems that are out there, and some of them borrow from each other, and they really like that. They think that that gives them comfort. But beating in their heart is still an emptiness that God says can only be filled with the Spirit of God and correct truth. And so now you find out what is sin. Sin is missing the mark of God's perfection. Sin is whatever you do that's in disobedience to God. You break the law in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. All the law, not just the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You have sinned. You're horribly separated from Him in a state of sin and condemnation. And He says all of that, and so we do have the legal code. There is some value to that because it points us to Christ. Now, we don't take the law and try to keep the law because then it doesn't point us to Christ. What does it do then? It points us away from Christ and back on ourselves. So now we have a human-centric theology rather than a Christocentric centric theology because even though we're trying to please this God, the more good we do, the better we feel. So we have pride and it's all about us and it's not only about Christ. So now you see the law points us to Jesus Christ. So now we get back into forgiveness again. That little phrase there says, you being dead in your trespasses is the uncircumcision of your flesh. I wish I had years to teach Colossians because when you read that, you think, what in the world is he saying? What's this uncircumcision of the flesh? If you were here last week, we covered a little bit of that. But he was hammering it again with these folks saying, now, if you recall, the uncircumcised is a term that would be used for Gentiles. So remember when you were Gentiles. Unsaved people. You weren't even Jewish. You were Gentiles unsaved. You were dead in your trespasses. You weren't even joined to the commonwealth of God, which would be known as the the Jews. All right, now let's step a little bit away from that. He also said, just merely being circumcised, whether you're a Gentile circumcised or whether you're a Jew circumcised, that outward circumcision won't get you to heaven either. And that falls back under previous teaching that we've seen here in Colossians. So he's basically saying, you are so lost, you're not even connected to it by heritage like the Jews are. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Now listen, this is critical. That's why if if you go to churches and they can have any brand on the side, they can sing even some of the same songs that we do and carry a Bible like you have. But if they're going to leave you the impression that you must do anything apart from faith alone in Christ then what's they're trying to do to a lost person is trying to get a dead man in trespasses and sins to dance. He has no power. A person, no matter how much he does good deeds, no matter how many times he wants to worship God in his song and lifestyle, or how much he wants to take out of his life, he's still dead in trespasses and sins, so you cannot get that person to do anything. So be very careful of the impression that you leave in the mind of a person who's listening to your simple gospel presentation. They're dead And the only one who could bring them to life again is not themselves by making reformation. It's by a spiritual transformation that occurs the moment they trust in Christ. Stay with the verse. It says here, you being dead into trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. Now, if you want to, you can mark that. It says he has, past tense, made you alive. You don't make yourself alive. There is a supernatural ignition switch that goes off by the power of God. It is so supernatural, so eternal, so permanent that once it's ignited you can't ever unignite this thing because he took over and he made that change you are dead now how does that happen it says here you has he made alive together with him now if you will circle the phrase together with him that means that you'll be eternally alive as long as jesus is eternally alive because he made you alive together with him So as eternal as Jesus is, that's how eternal you are. Where Jesus goes, you go to heaven because you have that divine nature of him. He made that alive inside of you. And notice how he did this. It says here, having forgiven you of most of your sins. Is that what it says? It says how many of your sins? All of your sins. Now, you can do this on your notes, but let me urge you to do it in your Bible, but then write it on your heart. That word all, now, some of you that are coming out of a particular religious background that says that you have mortal sins and you have venial sins. Mortal sins, if you commit this real bad sin, there's no hope for forgiveness for you. If it's a venial sin, it's small, and you can get some if you give enough money, pray enough, do enough penance, do enough uh, special stuff, and maybe you can get out of this uh, purgatory and finally make it to heaven, and they got a whole different way depending on the, the particular Christian leader, priest says. Now, I'm going to come back to this. With God, there are no mortal and venial sins. With God, every sin is a sin. And the worst sin you and I could commit is the sin of what is known as unbelief. Because it's from that sin most all the other sins proceed, because it comes from a dead and depraved nature. And so it says here that he has forgiven you of all trespasses. So there is absolutely no sin that is unforgivable in your heart when you trust Christ as Savior. And I know the argument about the unforgivable sin. Let me talk about that for just a moment. All right, It's said in the context where Jesus was being accused of casting out demons in in the name of Satan. And so they came against him for doing all of that stuff. And that's when he says that they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is the unforgivable sin. What they were really doing now is when Jesus was doing this, he was doing this by power of God, Holy Spirit, the Trinity there. He was doing this. It was an act of Almighty God. They said, you are not God doing this. This is of some other being. You are of Satan. So what he w- they were doing is saying, we don't believe you are Lord God. And we can even say that again. We don't believe you are Lord God's Savior. We don't believe who you claim to be. So in other words, they were not believing. So the sin of unbelief is not believing that Jesus is the Lord God Almighty, who is the Savior, paid for sin by faith alone. Not, I know I'm stretching it out from that passage. But the main context is that they were claiming that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be. And the moment we embrace Christ as the Lord and then He is our Savior and we trust Him completely, that forgivable sin is unforgivable sin is forgiven. It's done. And we're done. And we have eternal life. Now let me come back to the passage. Forgiving you all trespasses. Then it says, having wiped off the handwriting of most of the requirements. Is that what it says? No, it says of the requirements. Having wiped it away. Now as I did the study of the Greek, I'm going to try to contemporize it. First, in the Bible days... They would write on either parchment paper That would be more paper Like you pound up bark and all that So we'd call it more botanical paper Then they would do it on vellum Vellum would be animal skins That they pounded and turned it into paper So whether it's paper or, or, you know, plants, paper Or whether you have animal skins that they wrote on They would then write with different kinds of pens Now that pen would not have the acid like our Bic pens would have. How many of you growing up, you heard the story, don't use a Bic pen in your Bible, because when you wrote in your Bible, it would bleed through. Remember when you heard stuff like that? Bic pen, right, first time, every time, with a Bic pen. Well, they wrote it with non-acidic type of ink. They did it so they could wipe and change. We would today, we had markers. How many of you have seen these big, white, slick boards and if you took a magic marker and you wrote on that board, if you used the wrong marker, you could not wipe it off. How many of you used the wrong marker and you tried to erase it and afterwards you did this? <gasps> what have I done? All right, Because now you get a special chemical, blah, blah, blah. You can't get it off. It stays or a stain. This is talking about he wiped it off. He took all the sins that you've committed, no matter what they are, whatever was written against you, whatever thoughts that were wrong, your talk was wrong, your walk was wrong. Whatever you did, whatever you believed, however you thought about going to heaven, it was wrong. And God says, through Christ and his redemption and forgiveness, he says, I'm going to wipe all that stuff away so that you can have a new start with God and God alone. So he says that he's going to do this. So he wipes it all away. What a glorious thing that is. And then it says, has against us, which was contrary to us. In other words, no matter what we even tried to do, it was working against us because it left Christ out. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this at camp. I think it's kind of cute, but I, I want to make sure we don't get so caught up in, in, in doing things that we miss the real message. But I remember young, younger, long, much younger than I am now. We would take the kids to camp, and we would have them. There would be a cross. We have one here in the building, it's just not up here. But it'd be like a cross like that, made out of wood, real nice cross. Then we'd tell the kids to write down maybe the sin they committed that week or the worst sin they might have committed or some sins or as many sins as they could remember. And they would dry it, you know, just privately, just on that little piece of paper. we tell them, fold it up, fold it up, and then we tell them that now take that piece of paper, go to that wooden cross, here's a hammer, here's a nail, and I want you to take that and you nail it up there. Now, I, I, that's not necessarily bad. The problem is, is we reduce our sins to what we could remember. And with God, every sin that we have done, from motives to everything, that, that cross would be so filled. But the good news is how filled the cross would be with all the sin of mankind for all time, past, present, and future, when Jesus hung on that cross, he nailed it to himself and he says, Now I died and I'm forgiving you. So all that this is in forgiveness, it's not. Listen, listen. It's not just the Lord saying, "You know what? From His high holy heaven of greatness, I forgive you." Listen, listen. This is this. When I, I, I I I meditated on this passage, and I this meant so much to me. If if sin is what man said it was to be, and death is what man said it would be. And if man tells us how to get rid of sin and death, the question remains, then why did a high, holy God, Jesus Christ, ever have to come to this earth? It's because he has a holy hatred for sin. And he sees the eternality of death. And what that is is separation, not so much from uh, Christ from us. He doesn't need us. It's the joy that we will never have by having a relationship with Him. So He had to come to this earth, and He paid for our sins. That's the beauty of what He did when He says, I forgive you. So He forgave you with His death and His blood and His resurrection. Now, if that doesn't motivate us, then all the little trinket stuff we tell you to do and not do, that's not going to do it. There's no rewards, no little buttons and badges. It's got to be inside your heart. It's all about Jesus. All that other stuff is, is okay, as long as it doesn't take the place of a heart turned toward God. And, God alone. and that's what this passage is talking about. So we have, in the biblical view, a forgiveness of our sin. Let's go to number four. There's five of these. The fourth one is a secular worldview of evil authorities over us. <clears throat> now, I can stay in the context here, which I'm going to do, but I want to just kind of step away a little bit and, and pack a little bit more into that. Let's read the verse, and I'll show you what I mean. It, has, it says here, Having disarmed principalities and powers. Who did that? You know the theme is Christ. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now let's go back to the beach again with my little recorder here. Okay, Now I'm on the beach again, and I'm going to say, what forces are there that are in this world that could come against you? What forces would there be? I think you'd hear some of the following answers. I wish I had time to do all of this and show it up on the screen with nice little DVD stuff. I just don't. So just try to in your mind. I think what you would hear is something like this. One force against me would be mother nature and we're reading a lot about that probably the greatest uh, historical amount of tornadoes in the midwest that they're experiencing are you all following that and you think about other uh, tsunamis and other hurricanes and cyclones and all that that's going on and and dams that break and the list goes on and on and so they're going to say look at this force It, it must be evil it's funny how that when things go right, God doesn't get the glory for the sunny day. We just, hey, I'm, I deserve that. I'm entitled to a good day. When the day is bad, all of a sudden, how can God do such a thing like this to me? So God, they always think is a monster God, and they don't have any understanding what God is like. That's where Christians who need to understand the word as best as they possibly can as they grow in the knowledge of God to present a more biblical, accurate picture of who God is. And even that, there's always going to be that little wiggle room that we're not going to understand everything there is about God. And that should be okay by us. And every day of our life, we know a little bit more and we get a little bit closer to God. So They're going to say there's nature out there, some kind of this. How many of you are hearing more of this term? Well, you just had bad karma. And so now you've got this existential force that's against you, and they put it underneath the umbrella of some religious system of karma. And then we could talk about angels or superior beings. And so they're going to classify some angels as good angels and bad angels. And there's white witchcraft and black witchcraft. And we can go on and on with this whole story. So again, the world still sees some kind of force out there. And even when God... is a part of this force by far the majority of them don't understand what
0: this is joe Pons, and i want to thank you for listening to make it clear with the teaching of dr stan Pons, founder of make it clear ministries and president of clarity christian college make it clear is dedicated to taking the word of god with clarity into every person's world it's the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of make it clear possible